Please be seated. The church of Sardis is located, was located about 30 miles southeast of, of Thyatira. Uh, morally, it was very much like all of the other uh, churches in that part of, of the Roman Empire in the ancient world, but not just in the ancient world, but also in the modern world. It was a very, very wicked city. It was uh, deeply uh, steeped in uh, the worship of pagan gods and uh, to essentially worship the pagan gods was uh, to then engage in drunkenness and immorality and because the pagan gods uh, allowed that in essence because they were very much the same and the fables surrounding them it allowed uh, drunkenness and sexual immorality to become uh, legitimized in one sense and, and very very wide spread. It sat on a very important east-west trade route and uh, so it became very very prosperous as a result of that. A lot of wealth, a lot of material passed through it and it became a very prosperous commercial city, very prosperous uh, industrial city. It was a place to go and find uh, a job and uh, maybe you wouldn't live on the on, right on the coast of the Aegean Sea or something like this to be in Sardis was to be inland but there was work there and there was money to be made if you wanted to start uh, a business in, in Sardis. And yet, despite uh, the relative prosperity of Sardis at the time that Jesus writes this letter to them, the city is uh, historically a shell of its, its former self. 600 years prior to this letter, it was one of the outstanding and most powerful cities in all of, of Asia Minor. And now, for all of its activity and and, and all within the city, all of its prosperity, etc. It's a, a mere shadow of, of its former self. It's a city that is now living in large part upon its uh, former reputation and it is a city whose finest achievements and, and in terms of, of history uh, lie in its past. And uh, what is true of a city can also be true of a church. And that is exactly uh, one of the characteristics of the church of, of uh, Sardis there within, uh, within the city there, though in, for entirely different reasons. Notice in verse 1, and this is critical, how Jesus understands them uh, to see themselves. Notice in verse 1, uh, they had a name that they were alive. That's how that church saw themselves. This is a living church. This is a church that's alive. And of course, all churches and all church leaders and all everyone, you know, you would like to think that your church is alive. And it's one of the words that people use to express, you know, things are alive there and all of this kind of, of things. And, and though the term's a little bit dated, newer terms have uh, surpassed it now. But that's how they saw themselves, is very much alive. But as we'll see in just a moment, uh, Jesus declares uh, very plainly to them that they are dead. Now, I don't know how you uh, picture in your mind, and I work with pictures in my mind a little bit, uh, but I don't know how you picture this church of Sardis in, in your mind. And perhaps uh, you might be like some of the commentators that write on uh, Revelation that they see in Sardis a symbol of, of dead Protestantism. And so up comes in our mind this uh, uh, deteriorating uh, white clapboard church on the edge of town in, in uh, great disrepair and inside are a few aged saints who are just trying to keep the doors open and and uh, and and all and living off of the memories of what God had done there uh, once before, or we might look at it and think of Sardis as as some of uh, the liberal or denominational church that 's struggling to keep its doors open, trying to live off of its its uh, past uh, reputation for for greatness and surely I think the church of Sardis uh, represents all of that in part. One of the things that I don't like about those two definitions in terms of applying it to me or to applying it to this church is it makes it too, uh, too remote. That's not a category that, that we're in. I never see the church of Sardis 
is merely uh, those two things. It puts way too much distance between me and this passage and this church and this passage. The, to me, the ranks of the church at Sardis are filled with a very, very different kind of church too. And in verse 1, Jesus says to them, I know your works. He describes it as a working church, uh, a bustling church. The word work there means to labor, to work hard, to toil to the point of exhaustion. And I think that if you were to go to Sardis and attend the Calvary Chapel or the First Baptist Church of Sardis or whatever label that you'd like to put on that, that to go to that church would have been to see a a study in motion, a study in busyness. To go there on any given Sunday would be to receive a study in activity. The signs placed out in the parking lot, the signs placed out on the road, the parking lot is full. The bulletins, the greeters, the ushers, the nursery ministers, the children's ministry, the this ministry, the that ministry, and this ministry, and that ministry, until you're handed a bulletin that needs to be a trifold, you know, times two for all of the things that are happening there. It, to look at the church, it is the picture outwardly of, of spiritual health. And if you were to ask anyone that attended the church of Sardis, whether their church was alive, they would have been indignant. I mean, how would you, how would you even raise the question about whether we're alive? We are the standard for life in this community. I mean, everybody that attends this church knows that this is a living church. Look at all the stuff that's, that's going on. This is the church, of course, of, of what's happening now in town, and everybody knows it. They'd tell you that. They'd tell you that with a snort. Hmm. Had a reputation for being alive among those who attended the church. But not just within the church. It had a reputation for being alive by those that were on the outside looking at it. They came to the same conclusion. If you were to ask them about the church of Sardis and say, what what comes to your mind related to that church? They'd say, that church is alive. And all you'd have to do is ask the neighbors, ask the people living in the neighborhood, ask the city. If there was one church in town that you could look at and say, that church is alive, they'd tell you that it was this this church in in Sardis. But notice at the end of verse 1, Jesus' assessment of them, and it's recorded there in verse 1. He says, but you are dead. And that's known as clarity in teaching. And that's about as clear and direct as you can possibly get. You have a reputation, a name, that you're alive inside and out. But he says, I look at the exact same thing that everyone else is looking at. And everyone else sees life, and I'm telling you, you're dead. Capital D, capital E, capital A, capital D, dead. Look look at, at that. Now, the Church of Sardis teaches us that... We have to be very, very careful not to mistake religious activity with spiritual life. And, of course, Jesus sees through all all of that. A classic example of of the uh, lack of productivity related to physical, uh, just pure physical activity that has lost uh, its its contact with the head is, of course, to, to behead a chicken. Uh, to give it a few rings like this and the head stays in your hand and the chicken goes flying out and then what happens? <laughs> All over the place. It's a study and activity. But the activity is only an evidence that it's been disconnected from the head. And one of the great temptations within a church, within the body of Christ, is that when a church becomes disconnected from the head, and Jesus is the head of the church, that instead of allowing it to kind of dawn on people that that has happened, we have sometimes the talent and the ability and the programs and all to insert those things to give the illusion of life when Jesus looks at it and says, in terms of something eternal happening through that church, that has stopped a long time ago because that church is no longer connected uh, to the head. Now, this tells me that, that this church's definition of success 
and Jesus' definition of success are two entirely different definitions. The dead churches aren't as, as easy to spot as sometimes we, we think they are. We think, oh yeah, I know a dead church when I walk into one. Not always. Not always. They got a definition of success that they are operating under, and Jesus is operating under a different definition, a polar opposite uh, definition. It also makes me realize that an entire church can be completely self-deceived about their spirituality and about their spiritual effectiveness in, in the world, their impact for eternity within the world. And to me, Sardis is a very, very sobering letter to me. And it's very scary that we can fool others so completely. And the super scary, the doubly scary thing about Sardis is that we can fool ourselves over time in, in, in fooling others. To think that because we have all of these things going on, that something of the Spirit is happening here. Now notice in verse 1, Jesus reveals the cause of this um, dead but able to give the appearance of life uh, condition of the church in, in Sardis. And he reveals the cause of it and how he comes to the church. Remember, he comes to each one of these churches by describing himself from the description that John gives of him from chapter 1. And in that description, he is reminding them of something that they have forgotten about him or something that they need to be uh, doubly sensitive to and, and conscious uh, of. And notice he comes to the church at, to, at Sardis as the one who has the seven spirits of God. I think the Amplified Bible is correct in their amplification when it states, These are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God, that is the sevenfold Holy Spirit and the seven stars. This isn't the first reference to to the uh, seven spirits uh, in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 4, we're told, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us uh, uh, from our sins in his own blood. And when the seven spirits are referred to in John, uh, Revelation chapter 1 verse 4, it is clearly a reference to the Holy Spirit there. Again, there are 404 verses in the book of Revelation. Fully 278 of those verses are direct references to the Old Testament in order that we might, from the Old Testament, understand what in the world it is that Jesus is saying and, and revealing to us in this revelation of Him. So the big question becomes this. Where in the Old Testament is the Holy Spirit spoken of as sevenfold? Where in the Old Testament is there a sevenfold description of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit? And there's only one that I know. And it is in Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 11, verse 2, where there is the description, and you might turn to that. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. Hold your place in, in Revelation. But there is a place where the Holy Spirit and the anointing and work of the Holy Spirit upon the Messiah is described. So the church at Sardis is a church that has lost sight of the importance of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And they're dead because they've moved from a dependence upon the Holy Spirit. They're no longer under the control of the Holy Spirit. They're cut off from Him. Now, uh, through the years, uh, one of the things that... Uh, you know, part of the mail. Is most of your mail junk mail? I, okay, so I'm not alone. But the pastors get a lot of junk mail too. 
And uh, part of the mail that we get, not, not everything in this category is junk mail, but there's a lot of stuff that comes in the mail about how to grow a dynamic church, how to grow a church, how to have a growing church, how to have a gigantic church, how to have a human, you know, so... You've got to keep topping yourself on all this kind of stuff and how to have a dynamic church and so all of these different things. And, and uh, it's, it's interesting to me because uh, uh, I'll read through them because I, I desperately want uh, these things. But uh, you read through them and there's all these different, you read what the sessions are going to be on and the teachings and all these different things or how all of this happens. And I've, I have yet to receive a piece of literature in the mail where I'm told that uh, of the thousand and one signs of a healthy and dynamic church that it involves the presence of Jesus in the midst of that church and a dependence on the person of the Holy Spirit and yet this church has lost sight of that and they can attach any kind of uh, adjective or whatever that they want want to it and nothing can make up for that that's what makes a church a church now in this Isaiah chapter 11. I want to take a a minute or two just to examine the sevenfold description of the Holy Spirit here. And it's important for our purpose here tonight. What He brings and He alone brings to a local church. And uh, what He brings not only to a local church, but what He alone brings to a human life. And then, as we put ourselves in the place of the church of Sardis, what a church forfeits when it moves away from a dependence upon the Holy Spirit to the methods of man, the programs of man, the wisdom of man, and this kind of thing. Now notice, the Holy Spirit is first described as the Spirit of the Lord. To forsake a dependence upon the Holy Spirit is to forsake a dependence upon God. I am now filled with the idea that somehow I am able to do this or we are able to do this apart from Him. A second, uh, Isaiah describes the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of wisdom. That is, He provides us with the wisdom to handle ourselves wisely in the ministry and in the church and in our individual lives. Wisdom is the proper application of knowledge. It's the who, what, where, when, why, and how of, of life. That's what, what wisdom is. And to forsake a dependence upon the Holy Spirit is to forsake God's wisdom. It is to forsake a supernatural knowledge of what to do in a given situation. Who to use in this particular need or situation? Where to do something? Where to put that new home fellowship? Where to, you know, start this thing or do this particular thing or put this event on the calendar so that it can be most effective for the kingdom? When to do uh, something? Why something is happening in a church? Sometimes things happen in a church and sometimes it can be spiritual warfare. Sometimes it can be sin in the camp. It can be, things can be a lot of different things. And, and a person looks at those kinds of things and we can come to all kinds of wrong conclusions apart from the Holy Spirit. He's the one that's able to tell us, no, that's just the natural course of things in a church. Everything's fine. It's not undue spiritual warfare. There's no sin in the camp. Just keep doing what you're doing. But He's the only one that can bring that kind of wisdom to, uh, to us. And then he tells us how to something is to be done the best way. Now to be cut off from that is to be cut off from a lot. And apart from him, I'm going to be making all of those decisions on my own, which is not good because they affect an awful lot of people. Better for those things to be left to the Holy Spirit. Third, he's described as the spirit of understanding. And this refers to the supernatural insight and discernment that he brings to us in the different situations that a church finds itself in. We find ourselves in the ability to see something clearly. Where the situation looks like one thing to us outwardly and God knows it is nothing like what it looks like outwardly. It's about something entirely different. 
But without a spirit of understanding, we're going to come to the wrong conclusions and make all the wrong decisions related to it. You remember the Apostle Paul when he was in the city of Philippi and he's ministering there. And there's a young girl or a young woman. She's demon-possessed. She's a money-making machine for the owners. She's a slave and the owners that, that own her and all. She's following Paul and the disciples around Philippi and as he's ministering. And, and she's saying, these are the servants of the Most High God. You know, listen to what they're saying. And she's demon-possessed. This is what he, she's, she's saying. Everything looks all right. Everything sounds all right. But Paul realizes that's not the Holy Spirit that's working here. That's a demonic spirit. And she ca he casts the demon out of her. The spirit of understanding inside of, of him. To see beyond the outward to what's really going on. And it's very, very dangerous for a church to lose that work of the Holy Spirit. And only the Holy Spirit can, uh, can do it. There are so many situations where, and again it happens in our own personal lives, where sometimes intentionally someone's giving us one side of the story or a situation or selectively, you know, feeding us facts that would uh, lead us to make a wrong decision on something and it all looks all right, you know, on, on the surface. But God knows what's really happening here is something entirely different and He won't let us have a peace about it. We look at it and say, it all looks like that. Everybody says it is that. But this is not settled in our spirit. Where the Lord speaks to us, there's no peace here. Don't touch it. Let's not move on this thing. Let's wait till He tells us this is okay by His, His, Holy, uh, His Holy Spirit. And sometimes there's a reason that it's, it's not what it appears to be, but he won't tell us what it is. He can't tell us all the facts about everything, just enough to know he's not giving us a piece related to it and, and just to, to, to leave it uh, alone. In, in the, um, some number of years ago, they came out with a statistics related to um, the percentage of, of uh, uh, child molestations in the state of California. And, uh, and child molesters and location and then, and then the percentage of young people being molested and that kind of thing. And uh, I remember reading it in Modesto, number two in the state. Number two in the state. We were second only to some uh, small county in the heart of just urban, urban uh, Southern California. And, and one of the things that we do, for instance, in our, in our youth ministry and in our children's ministry, our screening process is as strict as it can be under California law. We cannot make it more strict than it is. But we do not depend solely upon that process. As people are brought in and wanting to work and applying and all these different things, we wait for the Holy Spirit to bear witness to our heart that this person is okay, that this is a person that he is adding to that area of ministry. And it's a work of the Holy Spirit. And if that does, if he doesn't move there, then, then the process doesn't move for that, that person, however desperate we might be. Sometimes it has nothing to do with anything like that. It can just be that God is working in this person's life and God is up to a couple of other things that he's trying to get into their life and, and situated and then he'll involve them in ministry but he doesn't want them distracted until that happens so there's no peace to move them along. But the importance of the spirit of understanding to a church. Number four, he's described as the spirit of counsel. That is, he gives us the supernatural ability to judge a situation, to deliberate a situation, to weigh it out well, and then give godly counsel. He gives the ability to understand a situation clearly and then to apply the whole counsel of the Word of God to the situation. He does that. And then number five, he's described as the spirit of might. He provides us with the might, with the power to do what it is 
that he's called us to do. So we don't have to keep everybody pumped up and cheerleading them and, you know, uh, giving them all kinds of things and stuff to keep them doing what it is, it is that, that they're doing. He provides the spiritual power for us to do what it is that, that we do. We can't do it in our own strength. He supplies that. And then six, he's described as the spirit of, of knowledge. He gives us the supernatural ability to know or to understand. Without him, that Bible is a closed book. Trust me, before I began to walk with the Lord, I played junior college basketball and, and we'd travel to all these away games and stuff and they'd put us in these uh, pretty simple hotels and and, uh, and the one thing that was in there was a Gideon's Bible most often. So I'd pull it out and I'd try to read it. Wow, pretty dry reading. Most exciting book in the whole world to me, right? You know, now, but nothing because the Spirit wasn't there to, to open it up. And this book, apart from the Spirit of the Lord, it would be a closed book. We'd miss all of its depths, all of its applications. And, and all, but without his revelation, we could never ever learn the truth that is found in, in this book. And then notice number seven, he is described as the spirit of the fear of the Lord. He provides a church and church leadership and the members of the church with a fear of God, a deep, deep, deep respect and reverence for God that is needed keep people like me in line and and the fear that fear of the Lord and that respect for God it helps me to stay more concerned with what he thinks about me and my service to the Lord and and the and, and the church and all in direction and what are we supposed to do than what maybe everybody else might think even though we're interested in everybody's input for prayer that 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 realization that we have. One day, as we spoke a little bit this morning, I'm going to stand before Him and give an account. And so the fear of God, the fear of man, the Bible says, is a snare, it's a trap. And the fear of the Lord keeps us away from, from that, that trap. And, and when the fear of the Lord is lost and it's replaced now with the fear of man, then the great concern becomes, okay, what do the people think of me? What do they think of the teaching? What do they think of the worship? Instead of what does God think and all? And then pretty soon the whole thing is man-focused and now you've got the church of Laodicea, which is a couple letters away. And one of the things that the Holy Spirit does is to protect us from that progression by keeping us in, in the fear of, of the Lord. Now you take those seven things, and, and who in their right mind would want to serve in a church that was cut off from those seven things, or any one of those seven things? And that's what the church of Sardis has done. What church could ever hope to survive? And that's precisely Jesus' point to the church at Sardis, to move from a dependence upon the person of the Holy Spirit in a church is to move from all of that. Now notice he also speaks uh, in that introduction in, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. He speaks of the seven stars. He is the one who uh, has the seven stars. And the seven stars are the angels or the messengers or uh, the pastors, the senior pastors, so to speak, of the seven churches. And he's declaring much the same uh, thing here. And Jesus is reminding them that they are in his hands. He is not in their hands. <laughs> He's not the genie in our hands to do whatever we want, put this whole plan together, a program together, all the things that we want and all, and then to ask him to, to bless it. That is to have the servant-master relationship completely opposite from what it's supposed to be. He holds us. He uses us however He wants. He's free to do that. We don't use Him however, however we want to do it. The church belongs to Jesus. It doesn't belong to man. Now notice the solution in all of this in verses 2 and 3. He tells them that they need to be watchful. In other words, they need to wake up to, to their condition. They've fallen asleep. Uh, to the importance of the Holy Spirit. They're, they're completely uh, asleep related to their, their condition. He tells them to wake up to this, become sensitive to this again. And then he tells them to strengthen, verse 2, the things that remain. Don't let this spread uh, uh, any further than it already has. 
There's certain areas apparently within the church of Sardis that were still uh, marginally under the direction of the Holy Spirit. And he is saying, you know, draw the line there and, and uh, maintain the ministry of the Spirit in those areas and reverse this uh, course, you know, in, in everything else that, that has, has died and, and get it back under the control of the Holy Spirit. In, uh, in other words, anything that's got the life of the Holy Spirit on on it, you go ahead and keep nurturing that and then just jettison everything else. Just get rid of everything else. And, and sometimes that needs to happen. Now notice the, the, those two words of, of verse 3. And uh, uh, they're not, no, they're both circleable, but one is more circleable than the other. But the two words are, uh, door number one, door number, the two words are, remember and how he tells them remember therefore how you have received and heard he calls on this church to remember the time in their church history when things were different when there was a a, a, a broad broad dependence upon the Holy Spirit within within that church in other words this church hadn't always been the way that it was. Now there are some churches that, that exist or they're, they're plodding along and, and they, there's nothing to remember. There was no understanding of the person, the work of the Holy Spirit to begin with. That's a different kind of situation. This is a church that knows better. Almost all strong churches begin with the work of the Holy Spirit. And, and they begin with the work of the Holy Spirit because there is among the people a dependence upon, upon the Holy Spirit. And so... He tells them, what are they to remember? How they had received and heard. Now, that word how is the one you want to circle. Notice he does not call upon them to remember what you have received. The problem in Sardis is not doctrinal, like Pergamos and Thyatira. That's not their problem at all. They are not in a dead condition because they have forgotten what they had received and heard. They are in a dead condition because they have forgotten how they had received and heard. And how had they received and, and heard? Once no doubt with an absolute dependence upon the Holy Spirit as Jesus is reminding them of that. That's the great thing about soften when it... A church starts, and, and again, a church that's going to grow and become strong in these things is a work of the Holy Spirit. But, but when you begin a church, and God calls somebody to begin it, or, and then people come alongside, and then they're all, everybody's working together in this and, and, and all of these, these kinds of things. I mean, nobody thinks they're an expert yet. Nobody, ha, nobody has any experience yet or any of these kinds of things. And, 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 and there's just that constant, you know, help, Lord. Apart from you, I can't do anything here. Nobody sits down and says, all right, well, I think we can get a six, you know, these things, and then put the, this plan. At least I don't know any Calvary Chapel that ever has. But, uh, none of these guys are smart enough, myself included. It's just you go out and you try and do something and then and try and stay, you know, close to the, to the Holy Spirit in it. I think of Solomon in the Old Testament on this. Remember, he had a disastrous end, but he, he did appear to repent in the end. But um, when he began as a king... And the Lord comes to him and says, Solomon, listen, what do, you, what do you want from me? I mean, you're going to be the king now of the most important nation and the most important people at that time on the face of, of the world. Now you're going to be the king. What do you want from me? And Solomon said to him, it was, so, it was so beautiful. It was too bad he moved from it. But that's the lesson for us too. He said to the Lord, he said, Lord, I don't even know how to walk out to the throne in the throne room and then walk back from it let alone how to sit on that throne and make the decisions that are going to impact a nation and impact history and so he said Lord I ask that you give me the wisdom to be able to make those decisions on that throne. Isn't that something where he'd look and say, not only do I not know how to make those decisions, I don't know whether you head to a throne, do you curtsy, or do you, do you walk backwards to the crowd, or how, what's the protocol here? I don't even know how all that works. Forgot to watch Dad on that. Let alone, I don't even know how to walk out there and sit down 
let alone how to make a decision. And bless the Lord. That dependence upon the Lord. I tell you, I, I, over time, it's so easy for human cleverness and ministry experience and our own wisdom and methods and our own programs to crowd all of that out. And Jesus is calling the church of Sardis to come back to the same kind of dependence upon the Holy Spirit that they had in the early days. That's an important word to any church, ours included. And then in verse 3, he calls on them to hold fast and to repent. And then in verse 3, he, his warning to those who will not watch. He said, I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. When a thief comes upon you, he comes upon you unexpectedly. He comes upon you quickly. And Jesus is saying that, that he would come upon them as a thief to chasten them, to, to judge them in their current uh, situation. Now the interesting thing about Sardis is this would have immediately uh, uh, struck a, a memory chord in their mind related to, to their history. Because there had been two times in their history when, their, when an enemy had come upon them quickly and they thought they couldn't fall from the condition that, that they were in and they fell in a night. And uh, the city of Sardis initially uh, was up, it was kind of a ridge that came off of a mountain and then there was this wide spot at the end of the ridge and they built the city of Sardis up on the top of it. Later the city expanded on, on the floor of the valley but initially it was all up on the top and it was way above the valley floor. And, and the, the terrain or the, 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 you know, what made up the surface that you would have to scale to get up and take the city made it impossible to, to conquer on, a, on just a purely natural kind of, of level. In fact, King Cyrus, who at that time was the most powerful man in the world, when he was conquering the ancient world, he came to the city of Sardis and he wanted to conquer it, but there was no way to conquer it because of its position. No amount of men, no amount of anything. You simply could not get up there to get them. And, but he couldn't bypass it because it would have made him vulnerable on his flank or on his rear militarily. So he said to his soldiers, he said, whoever can find a way to conquer that city, I'll bless them with who knows what, you know, an extra horse or something. Something really good, though. And uh, one of his, his key guys... He was sitting there and he's watching the whole, the sheer surfaces and the whole thing up and all. And up at the top, one of the two guards that was on duty up there, only had two guards for the whole city. That's how confident they were. He dropped his helmet over the wall. But he knew how to go down to the valley floor, pick it up and make his way back up there. And he did it. But he did not know he was being watched. And the man made note of the path that he took, brought together a group of, of soldiers, and they scaled in, found the city unguarded, and they conquered it because they had lost their, their watchfulness. And Jesus reminds them that they, they need to be uh, repent of this and be on watch related to these things. Now, in verse 4, he commends the remnant within uh, the church at Sardis. You know, no church is all one thing. So lots of different kinds of people. So in general, the church was in, in deep, deep trouble. But there was a remnant in Sardis that was uh, doing well. Just raise your hand if you think you're a part of the remnant here in this church. Okay, well, I'll look down quickly. You know, it's a, it's a humble group, I know. So there was a, but there were a few here in the church who had not defiled their garments, Jesus said. In other words, they'd been faithful to the Lord. Uh, they had been faithful to obey His, uh, His, His word, and He commends them for that. Now here's one of the problems, because he talks about they hadn't defiled their garments, which tells us that the church of, of Sardis had this tremendous appearance for life, but no holiness, no holiness wide, wide scale in that body. You remove an emphasis on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, that he gives the power to live this Christian life, and then also understanding that he really does 
so that when you teach the Word of God, you're not afraid that you're asking or putting a standard out that's too high for people to meet. Of course we can't do it in our own strength, but the confidence in the Holy Spirit to take us to these lofty places that He describes to us spiritually in, in the Word of God. But if I have no confidence in the person of the Holy Spirit, then the sermons will be ones that do not raise the bar at all spiritually in our lives. They begin to comfort people in carnality, and the bar gets lower and lower and lower and lower. And so the body becomes carnal. If the body does not become carnal, here's the second thing that happens in a, a church of, of Sardis. And that is that this, the preaching can remem- remain great. The teaching can, the high standard is laid out and, and the whole thing, but without an emphasis upon the Holy Spirit, there is no ability to live up to that standard. So what do you do to people? You force them to become actors. You force them to become hypocrites. So that they give the appearance of being holy in the meetings together with other Christians. But away from that environment, they are defiled. They are something entirely different. Because we can't live this life apart from the Holy uh, Spirit. And, and so the consequences are pretty broad related to, to all of this and the importance of, of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He declares in verse 4 that they will walk with Him in white for they are worthy of doing so. And when he says walking with him in white because they're worthy, that can't be talking about the imputed righteousness of Christ to us. In other words, when we give our life to the Lord, the perfect white robe of 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 righteousness is put to our account because of our faith in Jesus. Nobody's worthy of that. So he's talking about a different kind of, of righteousness. He's talking about a personal righteousness, a personal concern for holiness and faithfulness to God and obedience to, uh, to, to God. So it's talking about our, our individual life and, and character. And, and he says that we will walk with him in white because they're, for they are worthy of, of doing so. And how, how is it that we walk with him in white. When a person has that kind of character, by the Spirit of God, nobody can do it on their own, by the Spirit of God, that's a person who is communicating to God, fellowship with you is important to me. And it's so important to me, I will say no to all of these things that break communion between you and me. And the reward of that then is intimacy of relationship with Him. Jesus put it this way in John chapter 14. Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and, he will be, and, and we will come to him and make our home with him. There's an intimacy with God that is found in a holy life. Now notice in verse 5, his promise to the overcomers. An overcomer in the church of Sardis is one who recognizes that they're in this condition, separated from the Spirit. They've fallen asleep to their condition. They remember the importance of the dependence upon the Holy Spirit, and they return to it, and now they're going to keep their garments or their Christian character undefiled by the world. That's the overcomer. And here's the promise he gives to them. They shall be clothed in white garments. And so those who walk in the white robes of an obedient, righteous Christian life in this life, they're just merely giving an evidence now that they're true believers and that they will wear such a robe in the life to come. We're not saved on the basis of our good works, but every single person who is truly born again will have a life that's been changed by the Holy Spirit. And it will be characterized generally by, by biblical o- obedience. Then the second promise that he gives to overcomers, and this really scares people to death, doesn't it? He says, he will not blot our name from the book of life. Now you never thought that was possible before he said this, did he? So what in the world is he? What? He says, he will not blot our name from the book of life. Now the book of life is the list of all who have trusted in Jesus and as a result of that have everlasting life. 
And when Jesus tells them that he will never blot their names from the book of life, that is a very, very strong way of assuring them of their salvation. There's only one person who could blot their name from the book of life, and that is Jesus. And he promises that he never will do it, so it is to say in the strongest terms that we have everlasting life, to be confident in our salvation. That's, that's what he is, is communicating there. Our salvation is sure, and it is to be rested in. Why? Because we have a concern about these things. The concern, Jesus, why are you in church tonight? Because <laughs> you're concerned about What's, what's the Bible say? What does Jesus say? What does he want? The, these are evidences of, of these things. The work of the Spirit with, within, uh, within our lives. Now that imagery concerning all of this, it comes from a conversation between uh, God and Moses in Exodus chapter 32. So we say, where in the Old Testament does it talk about blotting a name out of, of a book and all? And Exodus chapter 32 has an account related to that. The children of Israel had been led by God through Moses out of Egypt. And then uh, later on when Moses goes up to meet with God to receive the Ten Commandments, he leaves everybody in the hands of Aaron, his brother. And, and Aaron, they say, oh, what happened to this Moses guy? You know, it forgets him about uh, 48 hours. <laughs> it's a thankless job, you know. And uh, so, so whatever happened to him, we gotta, what, what are we going to worship now? And on Aaron says, well, just give me all your uh, gold and stuff and earrings and everything. And, and uh, he fashioned it into a gold golden calf and they all and in various stages of undress are dancing around worshiping this calf and and everything and and the lord speaks to moses and says uh there's there's trouble in river city down there uh moses we got some problems down there and i want you to go down there and check that out and he goes down there and he sees this whole thing and just breaks his heart and there's a whole story related to that but we won't get into it but one of the things that he says to the people is he says let me go to the Lord and see if I can kind of, you know, fix what it is that, that you have done here. Maybe there's some way I can make an atonement for, for your sin. And what does Moses do? Talk about a, a heart. He goes to God and he says to the Lord, he asks the Lord to blot his name out of his book on behalf of these sinning people. He said, yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. And the Lord responded to him. He says, all right, give me the white out. That's not what he said. Is he? God's wonderful, isn't he? And the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. It doesn't mean we lose our salvation when we sin. But God is saying that he does not punish the innocent for the sins of the guilty. Everybody has to bear their own consequences related to, uh, to, to their, uh, the, the sin themselves. And their consequences to sin. And Moses could not bear the judgment or the consequences of, of, the, of, of the sin for them. And what the Lord is saying to this remnant and, and these overcomers in the church of Sardis is, is much the same way. He is saying that the faithful in Sardis would not bear the judgment or the chastening that he had promised was coming to the unfaithful there in verse 3 when he speaks of his coming to them to, to chasten them in, in their current condition. Then he says, number three, that Jesus promises that he will confess uh, the overcomer's name before his father and before his angels. The overcomer in that environment, he said, one day, that heavenly scene, I'm going to confess you as an overcomer. Here is an overcomer from Edesta right here and uh, bring you forth and confess you as such before the father and the entire angelic host in, in heaven. Those are the words that we wait for, don't we? Well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter in to the joy of, of, of the Lord. And so that's, that's the promise that he makes to these overcomers. And then he closes in verse 6 with an exhortation to have an ear to hear uh, what he is saying uh, to uh, the churches. Sardis was a church that had ceased to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit. 
upon his leading, uh, upon his guiding, upon his, his power, upon his wisdom. And as again, as I mentioned earlier, all strong churches, for the most part, we'll say for the most part, strong churches, at least the ones that are being faithful to biblical vision, they, they are born out of some move of the Holy Spirit. And early in the history of a church, it's very, very easy to stay there. Again, because you don't know anything, you don't have enough cleverness, you don't have enough people to pull off some of these other things and all that stuff. And so all you can do is say, please help, you know, what do we do now, you know, and God, He does it. This church is, there's such a history of that. And He just, He just, his, I'm telling you, and just mark it down in your heart. His strength is still made perfect in weakness. It is still made perfect in weakness. Your weakness will never hinder him. And what it is that he's called you to. But my cleverness will. My wisdom will. My program, my ideas, my schemes. Those things will limit the work of the Holy Spirit. But in the early days, I mean, it's so easy to depend upon him because you don't even know that there are other uh, clever kind of, of options. You, you don't even know that they exist, that you, that, it, that even though they're, you know, inadequate and feeble, you don't even know that they're there to even, even uh, try. But the great challenge for a church is to stay there, is to stay there as God blesses the church. And as more people come and more things begin to happen and all, and then you get a little experience and then you begin to think you're clever and then you begin to think that everything's figured out and then you begin in the counseling sessions to begin to think, okay, she's starting to talk and three minutes in I can tell this is problem 305B and I'll just wait till she finishes to give her the answer. Or in the meetings where the leaders come together and this is the thing and all, no need to pray. And that's what goes out in a church of Sardis almost immediately is prayer. Because prayer is an expression of my dependence upon God. And pretty soon you look and say, you handle this this way and this and the whole thing is just all corporate right in front of, of your eyes. And the Holy Spirit's been driven out by the wisdom of man and, and the cleverness of, of, of man. And it is so easy over time for a church to become a product of the natural talents and abilities of man. To go to the church of Sardis 2,000 years ago, I am very convinced would have been to go to a church filled with incredibly talented people. But you would look at all that was going on in that place, and as you would look at all the things that were going on, you'd look and say, everything that's happening here is the sum total of the talents and the abilities and the energies of the people that are going here. But there is no sense of the supernatural. It can be entirely explained on the basis of the physical. Then you go to another church, and just some storefront thing or whatever kind of a deal and all. And the, uh, the guy announces the text that you're going to turn to and he has to turn to the, uh, you know, table of contents to find it in the Bible himself, you know. But God's given him something to say and this thing and, and the whole deal. And yet God is happy to abide on it. And, and you, you, you look at it, and even when a church becomes a little bit different from maybe that place, as we began in that place, to come here, we, uh, it's one of the prayers of leadership here, is that whatever is happening here can never be explained by the sum total of the abilities of the leaders or the people that come to this church. Or it's lost that supernatural element. And I, I, don't, I don't mind, maybe you've had friends or family members that you invite to the church, you know, and, and they come and all, and they uh, spend about ten minutes listening or doing whatever kind of a deal, and the rest of the time they're looking around, they don't get it. They say, I, I, don't, I don't get what that's all about, I don't get why people come to this, I don't know why that church even exists at all. Praise the Lord! No other explanation for it except that the Holy Spirit has in His grace chosen this among many other churches in this community to just say it, 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 will, it will bear something supernatural of me 
and, and that pleases, uh, pleases me. The church has to be careful that it doesn't come under the control of clever people and smart people and experts and people who say the one thing that they must never ever say and that is I know you can't find it in the Bible but it works but it works you are going to make a church of Sardis out of that kind of, of, of thinking that's always where it leads and any church that ceases to be dependent upon the leading and the wisdom and the empowering of the Holy Spirit, it is dead. For all of the religious words, for all of the religious activity, for all the appearance of life, spiritually speaking, it is dead. It may know how to give the appearance of spiritual life, but it's no longer making a difference for the kingdom. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. How much is nothing? Is nothing. Is <laughs> nothing. Again, as I said, God's strength is still made perfect in weakness. He loves to bless it. He loves to bless a dependence upon Him. But what is true of a church is also true of individuals. Has an individual application to our lives. Early in our Christian life, there's a complete dependence upon the Holy Spirit. To ask to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And then that constant asking to be refilled with the Holy Spirit. Everything that comes across our path is, becomes immediate object of, of prayer. We're not figuring out, we aren't pulling out a yellow pad and, and doodling and figure and okay, and this and move and shift and all. There's all of that, that kind of dependence upon the Lord. And then as the years go by, as the year, and our whole, everything about our life is marked by the supernatural. We're so green and so wet behind the ears and all, but God is doing something. And then over time, we look at what we're doing in our homes or our businesses or the different areas of our life, and there's nothing of the supernatural uh, related to it anymore. I think it's good for us to ask. I'll ask myself, and maybe you'll join me tonight. When's the last time we asked to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be freshly refilled with the Holy Spirit? And sometimes it can be days and weeks and even months between times that I ask for that fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. When's the last time that I began the day by surrendering my life to the, the, the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I give you my eyes today for your purpose. I give you my ears. I give you my mind. I give you my hands. I give you my heart. I give you my feet. I give you all of me. All I ask is that you would do something that makes an impact spiritually for eternally through me today. I give you my life toward that end. And it's very, very easy in the Christian life to reach a point and say, it's been years since I've done that. And I have individually and personally become a part of the church of Sardis, even though the church that I may be attending isn't that. And, and so what, what do we do related to all of this? The last time that I asked for his leading and for his wisdom and, and for his power and, and all of these, these kinds of things. Just what Jesus said to the church at, at Sardis here. It's just, just a nice, quiet place here tonight. Nice, safe place here tonight to repent. To have a change of mind about what my Christian life has become in the light of what it once was. I'm not saying that this is true of any of us or all of us in this room tonight. I just say that if it is true, to turn and to repent and say, and to repent means to have a change of mind about the direction that I'm going in. And that change of mind results in a change of action where I choose to go in a different direction. 
and where a person looks and says, I don't know the last time my life was marked by the supernatural. The last time I heard his voice, had a prophecy, a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge. The last time that the word of God spoke to life and I was told by the Holy Spirit to then write that passage down and send it in a card to somebody else and and all. I can't even remember the last time that happened and have a change of mind about what I've become and and turn back and become this other thing once again. It's not that we don't know what it is. Most of us do. But it's something that we remember and so we know how to turn back to it. And that's the life that God has for us. Spirit-directed, Spirit-empowered, the wisdom and direction that comes from Him and it is to live the life of Jesus and He has it for us. And I wonder if the worship team will come forward right now and lead us in a couple worship songs while we just get a chance to let the Holy Spirit maybe work in our lives here tonight.